Thanks for joining us for another OSU Extension Garden Q&A. This session focuses on vegetable gardening in the Willamette Valley and features Benton County Master Gardeners and special guests Sue Dominguez, Jennifer Klommer, Emily Herb, and Elizabeth Records. The session was recorded live online in late May 2020. So I'm Elizabeth Records. I'm a program assistant with OSU Extension Master Gardener Program and Home Horticulture and I'm here with several great Master Gardener volunteers, Emily Herb, Sue Dominguez, and Jennifer Klommer, and I'll let uh, each of them say a little bit more about our time together today and a little bit about themselves. So this is Emily Herb talking, and um, I just wanna say welcome to all of you for joining us. This is, I, We've had a number of these now, these veggie Q&A sessions, but I want to let you know how they all got started, which is back uh, right when we were all going into quarantine and shutting down the Master Gardening Association here in Benton and Lynn counties. We had to shut down along with everything else, and we'd had a lot of great programmings planned for the spring and summer having to do with teaching folks gardening out you know, out in a hands-on environment. And so we were disappointed to have to um, stop doing that just like everybody else, but we wanted a way that we could continue to reach out to people, especially as we've seen during this time that more and more people have wanted to start growing their own food and, you know, having more time on their hands or feeling kind of the immediacy of our situation of wanting to get connected with vegetable gardening. So this has been our attempt at um, being able to be relevant to you and being able to reach out to all of you and answer those questions that you have right in your backyards about how to use what you have um, to start growing your own food. So that is how this got started and we've had um, some pretty good success and a lot of fun answering the questions. So yeah, I am, I've only been a master gardener for about a year, but I've been a vegetable gardener for many more years than that. and. Um, yeah, just to remind folks that this is mostly about vegetables. You might be able to sneak us in some questions about your fruit trees and that sort of thing too, but mostly what um, Sue and Jennifer and I know about is about the art of vegetable gardening. So Sue or Jennifer, I want to introduce yourselves. Jennifer um, Glomer. Is... <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I'm Jennifer Glomer and I've been gardening uh, a, a long time, but um, more recently at the Giving Garden, and we have uh, a, a collaborative garden there. Um, so a lot of my experience comes from um, raised bed gardening there and with uh, 4-H kids. Um, and my name is Sue Dominguez. Um, I manage a, a really large um, 35,000 square foot um, garden that's a donation garden. Um, and we use a lot of volunteers, and that's where I get a lot of work done <laughs> in a garden. But I do have a vegetable garden in my backyard, too. Um, and I, um, I've been gardening probably uh, most of my life, uh, growing vegetables with my family. And, um, and I've been a master gardener now, I think, for about 10 years, uh, more than that, 12 years. So. I see Cheryl Stratton is on, too. <laughs> okay, well, welcome everybody. And uh, right, if you would like to ask a question, you can feel free to either type it in the chat or to turn your mute off and turn your video on and uh, ask us a question. 
and we'll try to keep this hopping. Should we go ahead and answer one of those ones in the chat, Elizabeth? One from somebody who says, how do I ensure my zucchini bears fruit this year? Last year I got flowers, but no zucchini. How weird is that? I usually get a bumper crop with just one plant. So Sue, Jennifer, have thoughts about that? Ever had a zucchini that didn't bear any zucchini? <laughs> now I have heard and I should back this up with research, scientific research, but I have heard that um, sometimes the heat, if it gets too hot, um, they don't um, fruit well or flower well. Um, but I usually, I usually grow more than one zucchini or more than one type of squash. I don't know if that influences um, either attracting pollinators or if it, they need cross-pollination. I don't know the science behind that. You know, one thing that might help is actually to take um, a, like a soft paintbrush and touch the male flower and the female flower and um, make sure it gets pollinated because I've, I've never had that happen, but I always see a lot of bees in my, um, in my squash flowers. But to make sure that that gets pollinated, you could um, just do that a little bit. And you probably don't even have to do it very much because, you know, just a few zucchinis is usually enough. Yeah, my, my mind goes to pollinators as well, which makes me think of uh, maybe planting uh, some nasturtium or some other flowers nearby that would bring, bring the bees or bring the other pollinators to your zucchini just to make sure that um, that pollination is happening. Because I think that the, to me, that would, be, that would be the thing. If you didn't, I think you said that you got uh, got flowers, so just need the pollinators. And and uh, just this might be a good time to say as well that there might be questions that we can't answer. And um, if we cannot answer them, Elizabeth is uh, taking notes for us and we will do our best to research and then send out to all of you via email the answers to the things that we couldn't answer and also some resources that we consider really helpful for vegetable gardening. And so um, also, yeah, watch the chat because Elizabeth will be putting some good links in there that you can copy and use right away. So then we have another um, set of questions, uh, two questions. Is there a mulch that repels slugs or at least that they don't like? And has anybody had any experience with using nematodes to control slugs? I would say, is there a mulch that slugs don't like? When I think about mulch, I think about slug habitat. I hate to say it, but possibly a more hydrophobic mulch might be something to consider. Have any of you tried like hazelnut shells or something along those lines as a mulch or found that that's less hospitable? Yeah, I've used hazelnut shells before when I uh, had a smaller vegetable garden and I had raised beds. And I, I don't know that I'd be able to say that uh, they were terribly effective. I mean, I, I guess what I would say is that I don't have enough data because it could be just because I was in a good raised bed situation and with hazelnut shells that I didn't have big slug problems. So I'm not sure if it's the hazelnuts or not, but I've heard tell that people do say that um, using the hazelnut shells 
uh, help with the slug problem. But we, we could give some of our ideas about how to control slugs um, that don't have to do with mulches. I'm, I know, Jennifer, you know the scientific word for this stuff. I use the sluggo, which is uh, considered organic and is pet friendly, and I find it fairly effective. And I use it especially on my plants that are babies. Um, so right when I first put my broccoli and cabbages in and they're very vulnerable to a slug attack, that's when I am, make sure that I'm out there putting the sluggo out. Uh, once they get bigger, I think that they can stand a little bit of slug attack, so I try to be sort of judicious about how much I use, mostly because it's expensive. Any other slug ideas? I, I use um, beer sometimes, but beer to me is expensive too. So um, I actually, um, and I know it's one thing, uh, master gardeners don't usually tell you to make, you know, at home recipes, but one thing that you can make is um, that they've done research on is make your own um, slug bait, which is just um, basically sugar and um, some yeast, some baking yeast, and you mix it with some water and put it in little like yogurt container slug track and bury them in your garden and um, I mean bury them up to a little door that you open up in your slug trap so that the slugs go in and it actually works really really well and I put um, maybe a quart of water and two tablespoons of sugar to like two teaspoons of um, yeast and it's um, way cheaper than beer and it works. Very good. And nematodes, there is a question about using nematodes. Does anybody have experience with that? I don't. The only time I've used nematodes was to control um, cucumber beetles. And um, it's really hard to say if it actually worked or not, you know, like did anything because, you know, you spread the nematodes and they go into the ground, you know, into the soil and they, um, you know, are supposed to eat the eggs or whatever they're doing down there. And then um, you're supposed to have less, um, cucumber beetles in the garden and I did that at a, um, at a community garden and um, it was a very, very large space and that year um, we had very very few um, cucumber beetles and I don't know if that was the result of that but um, it seemed to do something and I, I never heard of it used for slugs so um, that might be something we've researched a little bit is um, using nematodes for slugs. Okay, so the next one, thank you for keeping them coming in the chat there. Um, I planted my lettuce starts two and a half weeks ago and they've been growing so nicely, but just now I looked at them and they're all wilted so much I fear they will die. Eek! Is this from too much or too little water? Also, as you know, today is a warmer day than the last few weeks. Yeah, baby lettuces are, are really hard to um, know. Sometimes you just lose them I mean, you could have a whole patch of them and you'll lose two of them. They just die for no apparent reason. Um, I, I think it's when it's an 80 something, 86 degree day. Um, yes, that can be an issue if they don't haven't had established roots. Um, although two and a half weeks ago, we had a good amount of rain in between. So you would think that um, their roots would be okay. Um, sometimes when it's really hot like this and I've um, put out new transplants, I'll try to put up a little shade over them. I'll put up some hoops and some remade stuff just to give them a little protection. Um, I don't know if you can kind of look around and see if anything's bothering the roots. Like if there's in standing water, 
that could also be a problem um, if they don't get very good drainage. Um, but usually um, I would think the wilting would be because it's not enough water. Mm -hmm. I have stuff wilting out there right now. So I'm going to go with it so hot. I think that uh, my plants um, are not used to this heat. We've, we've been having some nice rain and pretty temperate weather. And so all of, not all of them, but um, like most of my brassicas are, are wilting right now and other stuff is wilting. And so I think it's really important to, uh, when you've got new plantings, whether those new plantings are perennials or vegetables or whatever, you do kind of have to give them special attention if we get a hot day like this because they haven't had a chance to establish themselves yet. So um, I think that it's probably, it's probably a water issue and that you should just kind of wa watch them and baby them since, uh, since they're new and they might not have, uh, they might not have established themselves well enough to weather this, these warmer temperatures as well. So we have another one now. Um, my tomato plants have all curled up. This happened last year too. Parts look a like a pig's tail also. What to do? Curled up tomato leaves. I, I've just recently read that um, when your tomato leaves curl, sometimes it's because it's kind of cold and um, you know, maybe the soil is cold and, you know, you're putting them out. I'm not sure exactly when you put them out, but um, I planted my tomatoes a week ago from Saturday, last Saturday, so two, two Saturdays ago. And um, they actually, um, I was kind of surprised because they seem like they're growing already. But if you planted them before that, it might have been a little bit too cold at night for them. Um, and that could have been why they curled some. Um, and I don't know if you fertilize them too, because... Um, Sometimes if, you know, they're in contact with too much fertilizer, they might do weird things. So I don't know if one of you have something else. So recently, I don't remember if it was one of these calls or another thing I was participating in. Um, there was a question about uh, tomato and we actually could see a picture. And uh, I think it was the um, to tobacco mosaic virus that caused the leaves to do kind of funky. Mm, here's a funky picture. Oh. oh, those look weird. Are there aphids inside or some other bug inside the curl part? There's nothing on there. So if you unravel the leaf, is there anything in there inside? No, no, oh. there's not. It happened last year too. And I'm, I've got like 12, no, 14 plants and yeah, they were They're doing all that. doing that? Yes, and they all started doing this, and they were doing beautiful. Huh. Mm. I don't know yeah. what it is. And I've got all new soil this year. We dug out the old soil and went to Lane Forest Products, got new potting soil, and I'm stumped. I don't know. And I have a good garden. I know. Right. You know, and yeah, so that doesn't look normal. That looks kind of um, unusual. Like uh, it's not like from cold because it would be a little purple too sometimes if it's cold and that's not either of those things. So yeah, that's kind of strange. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you guys were my last hope. I could, oh! <laughs> did I pull them up and start over? 
There, Elizabeth has okay. something. So while we were talking about this, I looked in the Pacific Northwest Plant Disease Handbook, and I did find uh, a disease called curly top, which can affect a number of plants, including tomatoes. Uh, so I would need to do a little more research, but this is a possibility for what, what could be affecting your tomato. And it sounds like it's caused by an insect called the beet leafhopper. Uh, and this can spread, spread the disease between different plants. But we can share this within the chat and we can um, have this available in notes from this meeting as well. Well, if what do I do about it then? Should I pull them up and start over, honey? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for bearing with me. I'm just learning this uh, right here along with you. I just looked this up as we're talking. So, I see. for yeah. cultural controls, um, it says there's lots of options to control the leaf hopper. There's some resistant varieties that you can pick, um, and honestly, it's not saying here if removing the plants and starting over is an issue, but we can follow up with you um, after this meeting. Yeah, so we'll follow up with you, Kay, and uh, thanks for getting on the video and showing that to us because, uh, yeah. I appreciate your help very much. <laughs> okay, well, and we want you to be able to grow some tomatoes this year, so we will. I know it would be it would be a, a hard blow to me if I didn't get to grow my tomatoes. So we will try to get back to you about if you if there's a way to solve this or if you need to just try something else. Okay, thank you okay. very much. Bye bye. Thank you. Um, so then, uh, moving on, there's a two two part question here. Um, first is. Is it bad for plants if they wilt and then bounce back after watering day after day? Is that stressful for the plant? So yeah, I think that this is a really interesting question. So like my plants out there right now are wilting, is it really hard on them that they, they wilt down and then we water them and they bounce back? I mean, should one water in a way where your plants never wilt, or is it okay for them to wilt down and then bounce back? Anybody have thoughts about that? It's better to not uh, have them wilt, actually, to actually water them enough so that they don't wilt. It, wilting stresses them some, and you could um, stress them enough that you're, you know, inviting bugs to come in, insects to come in, and so. Yeah, and so, Sue, what would you say is the best strategy towards watering? Is it better to water? Well, um, I just turned on my irrigation. I just turned on all my irrigation in the garden uh, Tuesday because I knew it was going to be hot for a couple days and I planted a lot of new things out. So I turned on my irrigation so that it would be consistent watering every day. Um, and then today when I spent the morning out in the garden, I hand watered the things that I had just transplanted out so that um, they had a little bit of extra water um, and kept them from wilting. So, mm -hmm. but everybody doesn't have irrigation, but if you have a backyard garden, you can water a lot when it's hot. Okay, anybody else? Because I think that sometimes a question comes up about should one water uh, less frequently and deeply or should one water frequently 
and a little bit at a time. It sounds like you're setting up, at least during these hot days, to water some every day. Is that how you proceed throughout the rest of the summer, or do you have a different watering schedule? Well, when um, in my own garden, um, where I have more control over what I'm doing, um, you know, on a day-to-day basis, I I will um, water my tomatoes like once a week, just very deeply, and um, not water them in between unless it's a hundred degree, you know, week or something. I might go out and water them in between, but it's better for most plants to dry out and then water them. But like things like lettuce. You don't want to do that. And even the brassicas, you know, all the broccoli and cabbage and those things, they like kind of consistent watering. So it kind of depends on what you're growing. Um, You know, most plants like about an inch of water a week, Um, but things like tomatoes really like to dry out in between watering. So it kind of depends on what you're (laughs) growing. But lettuce, lettuce, especially um, leaf lettuce, when it gets really hot like this, every day it could be watered and sometimes twice a day. So um, it sounds like, though, if you, um, Christine, are doing the Three Sisters companion plantings and are planting everything from seed, um, I generally don't have as much problem with plants wilting when they've been started in place with seed, um, except the lettuces, that's a different thing. But generally, corn peas and squash, they're big seeds, and they develop a a deep root pretty quickly. So just to get them established, you just water them enough to get them established and then you really don't have to water those kind of um, vegetables every day. Yeah, that was- Those those ones that are established once a week, a deep watering would be sufficient. Yeah, the three sisters, that's like a separate thing. And uh, I have other plants that I, put in the, you know, from starts and stuff. So yeah, two, two part question, but thank you okay. for letting me know that. That's good to know. Okay. Yeah. Let's take a look at the second part of that question. Um, the second part is I'm trying this three sisters companion planting scheme for the first time this year with corn, peas, and squash. I wasn't sure if anyone had experience doing this in the Portland area or, and if I should adjust for this area at all. Currently I have the corn seeds in the mounds but I haven't planted peas or squash seeds around yet, but feel like maybe I should in order to get them going so there's enough time to produce in our season. Yeah, and usually it's corn, uh, I've heard it corn beans and squash. And if you choose pole beans, they'll get really tall and they, they grow during the hot season. I think peas, you could do that, but peas in general don't like it as hot. Mm-hmm. So um, I think pole beans might be a better um, choice to go up the corn stalks and then um, the squashes in between. Yeah, you know, usually every year we um, plant a three sisters garden. This year we didn't um, out in the garden, um, and um, and we do the three um, the corn, the beans, and the squash. And um, you know, traditionally the um, Native Americans used to put like a fish in the hole when they planted it. So it really likes a lot of fertilizer in each one of those holes that you plant. Um, and fish meal is a good uh, thing to use. But um, but um, it, it grows really well. And um, yeah, it, it's kind of fun, especially um, telling the story about the three sisters. So it's a good garden. I would second Jennifer's comment about choosing a pole bean. Like at this point, I planted my peas months ago and they're halfway up the trellis. And so those probably aren't going to 
to thrive getting into the summer here, I would, I would recommend a cold bean. Yeah. Well, that's, that's neat, Sue, that you have experience with that. So you're able to speak to that. I've read about it, but not, not done it myself. Okay. So then a follow up on the sluggo. Um, do I worry about the buildup of iron over time and its toxicity? Well, um, no, it's not something that I've thought to worry about, um, which just means that I'm naive about what sluggo is made out of. Jennifer. Iron phosphate. <laughs> yes, iron phosphate. <laughs> so Jennifer, do you worry about the, I know you use sluggo too. I do. Um, I do use sluggo. Um, like Emily, I use it only when the plants are very small. So beans are like, I just planted beans seeds are out. So I will use it, but I only use it. I try to only use it like initially. I don't continually put it on and it's, they're water soluble. So um, I, I don't know what the half-life is. That's kind of a good question, but I, I don't like put it on every day or every week or every, I just put it on for a crop. So I did just look this up with the National Pesticide Information Center, and they offer this answer to the question, what happens to iron phosphate in the environment? So it says iron and phosphate occur naturally in soil, and they do not become airborne. Slug and snail bait applications can add to the iron and phosphate in soils. However, they're often applied to soil in larger amounts as fertilizer. Iron and phosphate are also essential to animal and plant nutrition. Once applied, iron becomes part of the compounds that naturally are found in soil. They stick to soil particles and act as a bridge to bind particles together. So it sounds like at least National Pesticide Information Center, which provides unbiased scientific information on pesticides, isn't too concerned about the environmental fate of iron phosphate, um, in part because people are already applying fertilizers that have more iron and phosphate than could even be found in Sluggo. And I'll put that link in our chat as well. I would say that I just added um, iron on purpose to all of my rhododendrons uh, because they're having issues with their iron. And so I know that our so soils, my soil at least, is some of that soil that kind of leans towards alkalinity and is not acidic enough. And so in that alkaline situation, it means that iron is less available to some of the plants. And so in, in my thinking in that way, I haven't worried about iron, you know, just because uh, in, in the soil that I'm dealing with, we don't, there's not an overabundance of, of iron in my experience, or at least what uh, the acid loving plants would like there to be. So that's interesting information, Elizabeth. And I'm glad that we had had that question so that we could all think about the iron in our soil a little bit and what happens to it. Thank so, you. Yeah, absolutely, Kathy. Um, yeah, Elizabeth. Oh, I was just going to say, following up on the question earlier about parasitic nematodes for getting rid of slugs, I had shared back in the chat something else that I found from a slug and snail researcher based at OSU and what Professor McDonald shared is that currently there's not parasitic nematodes for slugs available in the US. Mm. Like maybe it's in the process of being researched. Very, very good. Okay, so now we're on to another question. My nasturtiums that I had growing on a fence became covered in black aphids last summer. 
I couldn't get them under control and ended up ripping them out when it started spreading to other plants. What can I do to stop them this year? I bought a soaker hose for my small garden and I want to set it on a water timer. Do you recommend any particular brand of water timer? So it sounds like we've got a couple different questions there. One about nasturtiums and aphids and a second one about timers. <laughs> so I'm laughing because nasturtiums are kind of traditionally the throwaway crop. Like people will plant nasturtiums so so they so they attract aphids and the aphids don't get on the broccolis and stuff like that. So I think your nasturtiums are doing a good job in keeping them off your garden, but that doesn't help you with the, the ugly-looking nasturtiums. Um, so I guess it's you decide which is more valuable, like the flower or you're keeping the aphids off the broccoli. Although I think, I don't know, nasturtiums I think are a little bit, somebody might know this, but I think they are also in the pea family. Um, and so when it starts getting hot, they just, they don't thrive anymore. So I, I always rip them out later in the summer. They just aren't, they don't bring joy when they look like that, I guess. Um, so um, I think if they've served their purpose and start looking really nasty, I think it's okay to rip them out. I don't know. Did you know that you can eat nasturtium flowers and you can eat the, um, the seeds? Uh, some people make capers, like they pickle them and make capers out of the seeds. There's a fermentation thing for you, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a new one. I used to always grow nasturtiums uh, just for the reason that Jennifer was mentioning. I, I grew them as a companion plant to try to uh, attract some of those bugs. And, uh, and, I, and I had a time in my life when I decorated carrot cakes with their flowers. But then I noticed that there would be a lot of bugs crawling out of the flowers onto the <laughs> carrot cake. <laughs> so I stopped that. But, but yeah, I think that my, my position on that would also be that the nasturtium was doing their job. But if you felt like you were kind of having an, an aphid nest that then was spreading to other stuff, then definitely would need to um, yank them out. Now about um, timers, anybody have a good idea for a timer? I don't like mine either. So if anybody has one they want to recommend, I would be interested. I don't know if we can officially uh, yeah, recommend a brand as a master gardener, but um, I've gotten several different kinds at just local Home Depot or Bymart that you can program and you can do seven days. Um, and they run about $30. Um, and you can run soaker hose on them. And I, I have, you can buy ones that have more than one attachment on it too. Um, uh, but you can also get lines that are really simple, just like a, a fan dial kind of timer, if you just want one. So you can say, hey, I just want this to run 30 minutes and run down. Um, but when I'm on vacation and stuff, I really like having the programmable kind where I know if it's going to be hot while I'm gone and I had just planted some small seeds and I wanted it to go off every day, um, it is nice to have during the summer. Okay, yeah. So another one, um, I noticed ants are eating the new little jalapenos in my new plant. I'm surprised that they would eat such a spicy thing as, an, as a jalapeno, is this normal? And if diatomaceous earth isn't working, 
what would you suggest? So you feel like the answer, eating the jalapeno that is set on your new jalapeno plant. That is surprising to me as well. Um, I remember on a previous one of these veggie Q&As that we had, it might have, yeah, that somebody was also asking about ants and feeling like ants were eating their plants. And all of us were kind of dubious about that. And so I wonder what we think about this. Are the ants eating the jalapeno or are the ants there and something else is eating the jalapeno? What do people think? Ants, um carry around aphid eggs and um, like move them around a lot. So a lot of times when you have ants, it's because they're uh, mining the aphids <laughs> that are on the plant. And um, if you can control the ants, um, you know, um, then you can help uh, get them away from the aphids, but you still have to get rid of the aphids if that's what it is. Um, and um, there's some, the you know, boric acid is really good for ants. Um, and there's, it comes in different forms, but um, there's um, some stuff that comes in these little um, little traps that's called um, taro, and it's um, it works really good for um, ants. Um, and you put it somewhere, you know, in the line of where the ants are going up and down, um, or in, you know, down and up the plant and stuff like near it. And um, it really does control. They take the boric acid and bring it back to their nest, and the ants. Um, stop coming really works well i've been having uh success controlling the aphids on my peppers just by washing them off um so that's a strategy that you can sometimes use too is if you just kind of have a strong jet of water you can um wash away the aphids or wash away the ants and that takes a little bit more care but if you don't have too many peppers that might be a strategy and they don't mind the water. Um, if they're kind of fragile pepper plants, I you know, can support them with a hand or that sort of thing if I feel like the water that I'm blasting on them is too much. But I did that also for aphids on my brassicas and with some pretty good success. And so it's a little time consuming if you have a bunch of plants, but it's uh, safe, right? It's just water. Um, so I'm coming down here. We have some comments in the chat about the three sisters and then, um, how do I get rid of slugs be besides sluggo? We had a uh, Sue's comment about making some homemade, um, slug traps with, with yeast and the like, or using beer. And, um, but then here's a question we haven't addressed, which is, has anyone had success growing basil outside? So, so basil is a, oh, go yes. ahead, Emily. No, no, go. you go. <laughs> so, so basil is a, a warm season crop. And around here, um, I actually have never had very good uh, luck starting basil if you try to start it from seed outside too early. Um, now the ground has warmed up, you probably, probably could successfully start it. Um, that's why many people will start basil inside um, earlier, like in March, um, and get them going and then transplant them outside now. So, um, but this time of year, you could probably start it outside and, and, and do very well. Um, 
or if you ha already have basil, like if you got some fresh um, from someplace else, basil grows very easily from cuttings. Um, yeah. So that's actually a really much faster way. Um, you can put the basil in a glass of water and get leaves going on them. You do have to gradually, um, I guess hardening off is kind of a weird term from a cutting, but you do have to get it used to be going in and out if you do grow them from cuttings. So if you had bought some basil from the grocery store and had a few extra springs, um, you, could, you could do that too. Yeah, I have um, had success both seeding it outdoors around now and into into June. You can um, seed it, direct seed it outdoors. And um, also have had success with starting it inside. I started a bunch inside this year and I haven't moved it out yet because it's one of those things, kind of like the peppers that really like it warm. And so um, I haven't gotten around to transplanting mine outside, but I know that an important step for it will be that hardening off, which is that process of taking a few days to take your, um, your plant from the greenhouse or from inside under a light and setting it outdoors during the day to get it used to being outside and getting used to having those varying fluctuations in temperature and in uh, sunlight and wind and all of that stuff so that when you put it out there, it doesn't go into shock and uh, have a hard time getting used to being outside. So I'd say go for basil. And then once you've got it going, in order to keep it going throughout the year, just make sure that you um, are constantly vigilant at snipping off the, the little seed heads, because that's something that basil will do. It really likes to put out its flowers and you can make your basil go a lot longer if you go out there and just with your fingernails or with a, a scissor, just keep pruning it down and then it will keep making some nice leaves and won't, won't go to seed on you. Okay, so now the next one is, I grew up in zone three and I'm struggling with knowing when to start plants indoors in the Eugene area as well as when the growing season generally ends here. Could I have some guidance about our growing season? So. What do you folks use to help you know when to plant things? Portland uh, garden chart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have, I have my, um, my go-to chart is I use the, where is it? The Portland garden nursery. They have a planting guide that uh, lists the whole year, January, uh, January all the way around and lists what you can be seeding indoors and what you can be seeding out of doors, um, what you can be seeding out of doors under cover. And so I, um, I refer to this garden chart. I keep it as a PDF on my phone. I keep printed copies out uh, with my seeds. I have copies of this all the plate, all the different places. And I, I really, every two weeks or so, I have to look at this document and see what it is that it's time to plant. And I'll be doing that again tomorrow. I just uh, cleared some stuff out that I planted in the spring. So I have some areas that I get to plant again and I'll get my chart out and study it and decide what of those things listed under you know, the end of May and June, I really wanna plant. So that's how I keep myself on track and it's not something that I can keep all in my head. And so 
I really commiserate with you, somebody who's moved from a different area to our area, and really um, maybe things don't feel intuitive to you. This is Elizabeth. I'm just going to add that uh, for those of us who are joining on Zoom, I've shared a link to where that guide lives. But if you're joining us as a Facebook viewer or listening to our podcast, you can search for Portland Nursery Planting Guide and find what Emily just discussed. There's also an OSU publication called Growing Your Own. And if you were to search the internet for that, you'd find it as well. Jennifer just held it up so <laughs> that can see us. Uh, but on page seven of that is a really good planting guide as well. And, and the Growing Your Own Planting Guide covers all of Oregon. So if you live in central Oregon or the coast, the dates are a little bit different um, than the Willamette Valley. So that's a nice reference too. Yeah. And we have an, we have an update on the wilting lettuce, which is that um, <laughs> uh, Meredith went out and watered it and it is perking up. So that's good news. And really all of us should be taking a look at our plants on this warmer day and giving them some water because like Sue said, it is stressful for them. So if we can keep them from going through this cycle, we'll have healthier plants and in the long run. Okay, so now we have a soaker hose question from Bree. Do you wrap the soaker hose around the plants in one continuous loop or do you cut them and use the T-split and just have them run in lines? Oh, soaker hoses and drip irrigation. <laughs> Any thoughts about that? It, I don't it depends, right? <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. So, so uh, it, uh, soaker hoses, generally, um, I don't cut my soaker hoses because they're kind of this long foam thing. Um, when I think of soaker hoses, it's the kind that ooze out the entire length. So the soaker hoses, I will just kind of loop them around down the bed or if I have containers that are, um, I'm going to be on vacation and I want the container, so I'll just loop them over the containers. So that's what I consider soaker hose. But if I'm using drip lines, which have emitters spaced either six inches or 12 inches apart and their um, the emitters are within the tubing um, and you are creating a system for a specific bed. I do use T's and create um, branches off of uh, the drip lines. So because um, I, if I create a drip line it's for a specific bed and it will stay in that bed. Whereas the soaker hoses, they kind of migrate around, so that's why I don't. This is Elizabeth. I would just add that for drip irrigation, um, I don't really want to cut up those those drip irrigation lines. I use the same ones from year to year, and I actually kind of lay out my beds um, around them. Mm -hmm. So I'm having beds with like three rows of crop, so each crop has one of those lines next to it. Um, yeah, a lot of the time I'm just working with with what the line is built like. Sue, did you have some thoughts? Well, I mean, one thing is like if I'm, I have landscape plants with drip, um, you know, with a soaker hose and I'll go around a bush or, you know, some kind of landscaping plants. I'll go around, I won't cut it, but I'll, I'll loop it around and then go to the next one and loop it around and, you know, kind of a continuous loop and then keep it there. Um, and it, you know, irrigates my, you know, 
hydrangea or, you know, whatever bushes I have growing. I have, I'm not as good as you guys, um, like with with the drip irrigation where a planting, where the emitters are, I'm, I, uh, I haven't gotten good enough in my planting. So like I plant willy nilly how I want to plant. And then my poor husband rolls out all of the <laughs> drip irrigation line and they don't match anything, you know? So this is a goal for me is, is that. But one of the things he does to solve my problem is that instead of having little emitters, he, he adds these micro soaker hoses because that gives me some more flexibility for Emily's crazy planting. And so I can say that with those micro soaker hoses, I do go around. Like yesterday, I planted my squash and my cucumbers and the drip irrigation that got rolled out for that one um, had some of those. And so I was winding the little uh, micro soaker hoses around the cucumbers. And I think they'll be really happy with that. And I'm happy that at least on that drip line, I don't have to put in too many goof plugs and redesign my whole, my whole line. But anyway, that's a goal for me is maybe to someday get consistent enough that I could remember how far apart I plant my things and have the emitters be at the right places. Okay, so I'm wondering if there's some more questions out there. We have about 15 minutes left and I'm not seeing more in the chat. So if somebody would like to ask a question. I see that Kathy's asking about a recipe for slug bait. Uh, Kathy, if you're joining us online, in that growing your own extension guide with the planting chart, there's Sue's recipe for slug bait um, that's put into a little Tupperware out in the garden within that publication. Uh, but yeah, I can also post it directly into the chat if you give me a moment. And then while we're waiting for other questions, um, at the Master Gardener Help Desk, I've been hearing a lot of inquiries about this insect that people are finding, and I'm going to, to share it with you as a visual for those who can see. But basically, people are finding this little dinosaur-looking insect on their plants and are concerned about it. This happens every year, and it is, in fact, the larva of a ladybug, a beneficial insect, but it looks scary, so people are often alarmed to see it. So I'm going to share this for those who are able to see us and uh, let you have a little look at that insect. Yes, I was so happy when the other day, uh, Sue pointed out that that was the larval stage of a ladybug because I don't, I'm afraid even though I'm a master gardener, I don't know my bugs very well. And so, now I know that bug and I'm happy to see it whenever I see it. So when I see that on my pepper plants with the aphids, um, I try to make sure it stays there. I would also add that sometimes these will show up where there's lots of aphids around because they want to eat the aphids. Um, but people might see them and think that they're causing the damage that's actually caused by the aphid. So that's something to think about as well um, if you see these in your garden. So Emily, yeah. I thought of you um, yesterday, I was harvesting kale and I noticed a lot of holes on the lower leaves that were kind of bigger holes, gapping things off the edges. Um, I thought, wow, this, well, these slugs, they really went crazy. Um, well, 
as I was cleaning up those leaves, lo and behold, I found one of those green, green fat things uh, from the oh. cabbage moth. Yeah. And um, I, I wondered about spraying them with BT. I've never had kale being eaten like that. Yeah. Have you, have you seen that this year? They don't usually choose kale. Right. They usually, it seems like the cabbage moth usually wants to choose the broccoli or the cauliflower or the cabbage. And so to have them be on the kale, I don't usually spray my kale with BT yeah. because I don't usually have that problem. And so it's interesting to, to get to see that worm, you know, get to see. Yeah. It was, I was really actually very happy. But I was like, I found one. There's probably more, but so I just cleaned up everything. I just thought, oh, and I looked at, visually looked at the plants. Um, I don't really want to spray them if I don't have to, but if I see new damage, I probably... yeah, that's what I would say is if they're desperate enough to go for kale, I guess I'll spray them then. <laughs> so if you see those white butterflies flying around your garden right now, that's what they're doing, landing on the brassica plants and la um, laying eggs to cause those cabbage moth larva. And okay. I, I remember um, Sue when we were talking about cabbage moths last time and I said that I spray with BT and you said that you give your grandkids a butterfly a net, net yes. to catch them. And so I had a little guy, a neighbor guy that comes over that still comes in my backyard and we social distance and all of that. But I gave him a badminton What's that called? Racket. racket. I gave him a badminton racket, and lo, if he didn't get like three of them, and he and just from that predatory action, chased the rest of them away. And so that's my new go-to is um, I give that kid a racket, and if he's not around, I pick up the racket myself. I've been getting better. They're not terribly fast, you know. Yeah. So yeah. you can you can actually kill them that way. Okay. I you might be wondering what BT is. I just realized that we said that abbreviation without explaining what it is. Yes. Attempt to pronounce the Latin. It is Bacillus thuringiensis. And this is a species of bacteria that lives in the soil. Um, and it makes proteins that are toxic to some insects when eaten, but not to others. So this is something that we can use um, as a deterrent for certain species of insect and as a, a pesticide. But for those who are joining us online, again, I'm gonna share a reference for that in the chat. Yeah. Okay, so it looks like we have a potato question. Emily, I tried to grow potatoes last year after you talked about them in Seed to Supper program. Um, it didn't work out well. My husband dumped some of the soil out in a random spot in my yard. I see potato leaves growing in the ground. Should I let them grow or pull them? Is there any way to protect them since they are in my yard and not even close to my garden? So year two, we have some volunteer potatoes from the potatoes you tried to grow last year. <laughs> Should you leave them? Will this work out? What do you guys think? They, they do grow. They, they, you know, and I've pulled up potatoes before and ate them before from, um, you know, volunteers from last year, just growing. It's kind of hard to mound them or do much if they're just kind of spread out in your yard, you know, and not in a garden bed. But um, you'll probably get some potatoes out of it if you let them grow. 
That's what I would think. It's hard. Um, I often have volunteer potatoes just because I don't get all of the potatoes out when I'm harvesting the potatoes. And so then potatoes kind of become a weed that I'm dealing with as they come up in the bed where they were last year, um, where I don't want them this year, but I've never let any go. So I didn't myself have an answer to that question, but it seems to me that um, it's, it's a potato growing. So you could probably get some potatoes off of there. And I use, mostly use grass clippings to mound my potatoes. And so if, they're, if your potato, uh, your volunteer potatoes are growing in a place in your yard where you might be able to mound some of your grass clippings from mowing your lawn around them, that might encourage them to make a few more. And so you could just see what happens. And if you get a dinner out of it, that would be really fun. Okay, somebody's recommending a fly swatter for, uh, for the cabbage moss as well. And uh, somebody, yeah, Bree's saying, my purple pod bean leaves are being devoured before they can grow very much out of the ground. What do you re recommend to protect them? Just sluggo or should I use a net to cover? I imagine it's slugs. Mm -hmm. So I would, um, I would go forward with the sluggos. What do others think? Agree. Yeah, I have seen I have seen crows sitting on um, uh, bean beds, pecking at those beans, you know, and or little tiny plants like uh, ripping them apart. And I've seen other flowers do that to uh, you know other um, I'm sorry other birds do that to plants. And I always thought, oh, that's probably a slug, but um, I've actually seen crows do that. They like those little bean plants. Well, you can I tell say, the whole thing yeah. is pulled out. It was yeah. probably a bird. And if you just see like the bean stem and you saw the leaf things coming up yesterday and all of a sudden it's just the stem, that was probably a slug. I think a mouse in my garden um, too. I thought the mice were eating the beans and leaving one stem. Oh. So, yeah. One other critter to think of if the stem is cut off right at the ground could be a cutworm. Um, I've seen some of those in questions that people have sent to Master Gardener's email recently. Uh, but so yeah, it kind of depends on the damage, what sort of steps to take. If yeah. you have details to share. I've had starlings uh, clip, off, clip off the leaves of mm. my brassicas you know, so, or just completely cut the plant off and I've seen them do it, so I know it's them. So those birds can actually, you know, we like to invite birds into our, into our yards, you know, it's good for the environment to see the birds and everything, but that it's not beneath them to also uh, attack <laughs> our vegetables in some ways. Um, so then uh, Brie is asking, I believe, about her potatoes, when should she pull them out? So we could talk about how do we know when potatoes are done? Potatoes will bloom. Potatoes actually have a really kind of a beautiful bloom, I think. And so you'll, your potatoes will grow and they will bloom. And then they will get to a point when they kind of start to dry out and fall over. And that is when I know that it's okay to harvest them. It's also the good time to stop watering them is when you see your potato vines start to get kind of yellow 
and fall over. Um, I've made the mistake before of continuing to water them. And then I had slugs attacking my potatoes mm -hmm. because it was just too damp of an environment in all of those grass clippings that I put on them. So anybody else have ideas about potato harvesting? Well, when you see those first blooms, it means there's uh, new potatoes in the ground. You know, they're not mature potatoes, but they're new. So if you uh, can't wait for a whole big potato and you want to eat those uh, little new potatoes, it's really the time to start harvesting them. And you could save some to grow bigger later, but uh, just dig up some. And steal, steal some. Okay. Oh, here's a gopher question. I have gophers that are digging into my raised beds. Any recommendations of how to get rid of them or otherwise deal with them? Gophers. Pretty good luck with those traps that are like the big metal trap that's kind of dangerous to set, but it actually like works with action a little bit like a mouse trap. You do have to just keep an eye on them and if you find that the gophers kick dirt into them to stop the action of the trap you have to redig the hole and stick the trap down there again so sometimes you have to set it a few times i would also recommend to to cover the hole with a board or something both to keep people and pets from coming in contact with this potentially hazardous trap and to also keep keep the gopher literally in the dark and believing that it's safe underground and not seeing that the trap is there. Um, recently we had a webinar with a wildlife biologist specifically about gophers and moles and other burrowing animals that often interfere with gardens and I'm going to post a link to that in the chat or you can also find it on our Facebook page. Okay well we're coming up close to the top of the hour if anybody has one last question we might be able to answer it before we close. But thank you everybody for these great questions and for tuning in and listening to us uh, uh, do our best to answer your vegetable gardening questions. <laughs> and um, uh, I believe that all of you can expect to receive an email from Elizabeth and the Master Gardening Association with uh, some more resources and answers to any of these questions that that we didn't feel like we answered sufficiently. Um, uh, here's a question about pomegranates. This might be a stumper for us. I know it will be for me. I don't have any I have any experience with pomegranates. But for our last question, does curly top affect pomegranates too? Has anybody grown pomegranates before? I, I've grown pomegranates because it was an experiment with the kids that all the different seeds you can collect around your house and you plant them and see what grows. And I heard pomegranates made a really good house plant and we got the pomegranates to grow and they're really beautiful. But I think we're out of the um, zone because I don't know very many people or any people that grow pomegranates locally. So I think um, Corvallis or this area is out of the zone of pomegranates. I know in California they grow them. Yep. So. so I have an ornamental pomegranate. Um, I don't know what fa family it's in, though. Hmm. Typically, you think of diseases in, in families. So like 
you know, if you're thinking of the tomato curly top, you know, and it, but it was called beet. So it was tomato, the solanaceae, and also the spinach kind of things. So I would be surprised if it would affect pomegranate since pomegranate is a woody shrub. You know, I would be thinking things that would affect pomegranates would be more like what would affect other fruit trees. So like peach leaf pearl or the, um, the coddling moth or that kind of thing. Um, uh, anyway, that I don't know. I've not grown pomegranates to eat. I've only had um, ornaments. Yes. Okay. Well, and somebody asked a question in the chat about if there will be a recording of this veggie Q&A and you can see if you're online and if not, yes, there will be uh, recordings of this. These veggie Q&As are being turned into podcasts, which is kind of fun, and they can be found at the link that Elizabeth provided. So any last words, Elizabeth, before we close this out? Thanks everyone who joined us and for all the really great questions. We're going to be doing some more of these coming up in June, so stay tuned for those dates uh, coming soon to our Facebook events page. We're the Master Gardener Programs of Lynn and Benton County. I wanted to say thank you to a couple of observers who joined us today, Karen Magnuson and Cheryl Stratton. There are other volunteers that are interested in being part of Q&As in future, so thank you uh, for being there to join us today. And you can always reach out to OSU Extension Master Gardeners through our website, through Facebook, um, or find your local Extension office online. Okay, thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Take care Bye. until next time, and good luck with your gardening. Bye-bye yeah. <laughs> now. Thanks for joining us, and check out more great gardening information online at extension.oregonstate.edu.